0: Hi, I'm Maya Grants. And I'm Rebecca Cohen. And this is The Sauce, the Culture and Politics podcast where we drink cocktails and ruin the stuff you love.
1: In today's episode, we're gonna ruin your dreams.
0: Oh my god I can not I d I can't I can't do it. Hope is the last thing that survives, Rebecca. <laughs> In all seriousness,
1: we are going to ruin the Netflix show, The Sandman, and the Neil Gaiman-penned DC Vertigo comic
0: on which it is based. I think this is really going to test our capacity to do what we do. I really think this is going to be like maybe one of the hardest things we've ever done.
1: It's just something we're both very big longtime fans of and feel very positively about. All
0: right. So, maybe really what we're going to be ruining is ourselves, our capacity for ruining things.
1: <laughs> well, in keeping with the theme of the show and the <laughs> comics, I think that's true.
0: All right, all right. Well, first of all, how are we doing? What are we drinking? How are we doing and are we drinking? I'm not, because guess what, guys? I got reinfected with COVID. Wah, I was about- wah. Oh, God, I was literally I was about to go to this two week residency. They gave me money to do it. It was a big fucking deal at all this work I was going to get done. Everything about you it guys, was so great. Guys, guys. Maya was like about to get on the plane. I was I was 90 minutes from leaving the house. Like I'd spent all day packing all the shit and and I'd had this allergy attack and I thought, you know, I'm going to be seeing friends just for your own comfort my, just for your own, you peace know, of mind. peace of mind, for your own peace of mind. You should just do the COVID test. It's going to be negative. Oh no. You idiot.
1: <laughs> I know. Why? I know. Why would you do it?
0: Actually, I have to say, my husband was like, well, I found out and he's like, so what are you going to do? And there was this real <laughs> sense that if I'd been like, I'm going to lie to everyone. He would have been like, hey, all right, we'll never speak of this again. Only like, you and I know about this. we <laughs> <Yeah, totally, laughs> could never leave this totally. room. There was, there was a little moment like that, but I couldn't do that.
1: Oh, you're too good a person. So you totally missed out on this residency.
0: I did. I am currently. Right now there's Missing a big, out. beautiful, empty studio in the rural Georgia mountains that I am not in. <laughs> that's so sad. It is sad. And so yeah, I'm drinking tea. I'm sorry for my slightly froggy voice. And I've been binging A League of Their Own, the reboot. I've been binging P-Valley. And for this episode, I binged the entire season of The Sandman in 24 hours.
1: Can't (laughs) wait to talk about it with you. How
0: about you, babe? How are you doing? And are you drinking in your ongoing recovery
1: (laughs) so i am drinking okay because i feel so bad that we haven't been drinking for like the past (laughs) couple episodes and i'm like the listeners have expectations and you know it's the theme of the show so i really want to show up here now i am drinking red wine and diet coke i'm sorry don't make that face (laughs) it's a thing in spain It's a thing.
0: Oh, oh, well, if the Spaniards do it, (laughs) then that's fine. If the Spaniards do it, then that's... I honestly... It's like a a different kind of shandy. It's fine. Or or
1: like a wine cooler, you know? You put a little 7-Up or ginger ale in your wine. I'm not against that. I don't look down on that. We read an article. Matt forwarded me an article a few months ago that was about this, like, popular Spanish drink that's red wine and Coke. So... Yeah.
0: It's red wine and Diet Coke. So so you're not being like gross, you're being hip and cool and European. I mean continental. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to briefly mention something that I didn't bring up last week, because I want to thank our patrons. Yes. On the sauce speakeasy. And I, I didn't share this thing that happened. So I was coming home, and I needed to get in an Uber. And I As I'm opening the door to the Uber, I notice the sticker on the window that's this like eagle, like one of those like, ah, like super Mm. American, like, ah, like eagle wearing, you know, Mm -hmm. a a USA t-shirt. And I was like, okay. And then I get in. Oh, God. And the driver starts talking to me. And I don't know how it comes up. But he immediately starts talking about like survivalism and how he's looking for the... Boy Scout manual, but what do you think? Do you think that the liberals have burned all the copies of the Boy Scout manual? And I'm like, You're Uber driver? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah yes. Oh yes. And and I and oh, I was like, I
1: just would love to know how you gave him the impression that you're the person
0: I mean, I guess he probably you know, talked to everyone about this, day, but like Because my fashion statement for the fall, my 2022 fashion statement for the fall, Mm -hmm. is abortion t-shirts. Like, that's my whole new thing. Were you wearing one at the time? No, but I had thought about it earlier when I was getting dressed. I'm like, should I wear uh, one of these, you know, like, my Ask Me About My Abortion Agenda t-shirt that I got as a fundraiser? And I was like, no, not today. And then I was like, oh my God, thank God. Thank God I did not. And so I was reporting to Discord the whole time. (laughs) And the patrons were supporting me because once he stopped talking. You were basically talking,
1: like live posting. I was the live posting
0: this, the conversation with this and bananas Uber driver. Banana. And he was listening to right wing talk radio. Oh, which while I you were in the car. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and I knew, I knew that I couldn't say, could you turn that down or could you change the station? Because I knew for somebody like that, that would just be a reason to try to have more conversation. Right. If you say like, could you turn that down? He'd be like, oh, why? Do you not? Because you want to hear what I have to say. That's right. Uh Oh, okay. Uh Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I was just like, I'm sure you could find a PDF of the Boy Scout manual. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> on the internet and he's like yeah but then your phone dies and what if you're out you're out in the woods and like and I'm like you can print a copy like I was yeah. like oh my god why am I even and luckily he stopped and I love our listeners I love our patrons Bless you. I kiss you. I love all of you for your support in that time.
1: That's a fascinating story. I'm surprised you didn't just jump in and role play.
0: You know what? I, I was in one of those places where I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't have it in me right now. I do not. <laughs> I completely I just understand want, that. <laughs> I want this drive to be quick. I want it to be safe.
1: How soon can this be over with me not being dead?
0: (laughs) Absolutely. That is exactly, exactly where I was. And then he was talking about all the different high schools that he didn't finish. And I was like, you know, this guy is working. for. like, I'm not going to get in a fight with this guy. This guy is clearly struggling in other ways. And it's not like, who am I winning by like, putting him, you know, like. uh, He's not, he's not really. He's not the enemy. He's not the enemy. Mitch McConnell is the enemy. Exactly. It's Mitch McConnell. All right. All right. Do we need to start by talking about what the Sandman is and why we love it so much? I think we kind of need to just... Yeah, sort of set
1: this. Okay. We're going to talk about the Sandman. The comic book from DC Comics that ran from, like, 1989 to 94? It was
0: 88 to 96. 96?
1: Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, and the recent Netflix show that just premiered. I want to do this in a way that people can enjoy, even if you aren't familiar with the material. Maybe you've watched the show but didn't read the comic or vice versa. Maybe neither. There will be spoilers, we're not going to be able to help ourselves when it comes to that, but we'll try to make this accessible and fun. At the same time, uh, we're going to fangirl a little. It's just going to happen. We're not going to be able to avoid this.
0: I think this might be the biggest, like, site of squeeing, like, of all. Like, we've done 160 episodes, and I think there's going to be a lot of squeeing. The maybe yeah. some of the most. So I'm just telling you now. This
1: is something you now, guys, that we have loved. So, you want to start by just sort of talking about what Sandman is?
0: Yes. Go ahead. Okay. So, The Sandman uh, was this series of comics. It was written by Neil Gaiman, who went on to, and this I feel like was his big fucking breakout thing. Yeah. Because he's gone on to write a bunch of things that you guys have probably heard of American Gods and Coraline, things that were movies, like all of this good omens. But this was his giant breakout palette. Where he got to like work out all of the things that he was interested in, and it circles around this lead character of Dream of the Endless. In his, in his conception of the universe, there are these seven endless anthropomorphic entities, entities, beings, uh, and then all gods and all these other things that humans believe in. They come and go, but they all exist. They all exist. Literally in this world, in these yeah. parallel planes that are always existing. But the love for these gods sort of changes over human time. But these are the endless. So this is about Morpheus, who is dream of the endless, who's in charge of the realm of so dreams. He's,
1: he's simultaneously like the personification of the concept of dreams and dreaming and like the king of the realm
0: that is called the dreaming, which is like where you go when you sleep. Yes. And we we meet him at a time of crisis, and we follow him over his various journeys, but we are meant to believe that he has been here for all time, along with his siblings, death, desire, despair, destruction, who's left, uh, delirium, who was once delight, and destiny.
1: It's a pretty good summary. Yeah. This comic ran for 75 issues, and... I think contextually it's important to know, I think we'll talk about this more later, that in this period around like the late 80s, early 90s, there wasn't a lot of space in comics for this type of storytelling. It was mostly like superhero comics or like alternative comics. Yes. And alternative comics have their root largely in the 60s and there's a lot of great history there and there's some awesome fucking comics. But this was a DC comic. And it launched, in essence, DC's label, their, like, sub-label of Vertigo, which was artsy, mature, interesting fantasy horror comics that were separate from what you would normally expect from DC Comics, which would be your superhero fair.
0: And I think that the reason that uh, it was so beloved, I think a lot of alternative comics were in this era getting to be published as graphic novels and i think that i encountered sandman through all of the collections right the trade paperbacks the, the trade paperbacks of these sort of that almost like took each sort of arc story arc and like yeah. and so there's a way that i feel like sandman was this really sweet spot of alternative comic And mainstream comic. Like, I feel like it hit this crux in this way that was notable.
1: So it has been 30 years that uh, those involved in the creation and publication of the Sandman comics have been working on trying to do a screen adaptation. I mean, they definitely have been working on this since before the comic ended. Since the early 90s, if not before that. And everything's been sort of fits and starts. There's like, this actor was attached... That studio was interested, and in everything. It
0: always seemed to fall through, partly because it's such a huge story. And I think that if it had just been reduced to a single movie, it would have been so disappointing. Yeah, oh my it's, God, it's one of those
1: properties that people have called unadaptable. Yes. So I didn't even know that this Netflix series, by the way, was happening. Like I, I didn't either. Know I didn't either. I had no idea that this was in development or in production. I was looking at Twitter and like somebody tweeted or retweeted something about the Sandman on Netflix. And I was like, what the fuck? So I go and look at the trailers and I was like, holy shit. It had left my mind. I had lost all hope or expectation that it would ever get a screen adaptation. And then all of a sudden it's there.
0: I feel like it must have been a huge thing when Game of Thrones was first adapted. Because I feel like there is a way that Game of Thrones could have absolutely been seen as unadaptable because it's just so huge and sprawling. And I feel like it makes total sense that Sandman only could happen now when there is a kind of streaming infrastructure that can support the telling of such complex and huge stories like this. Yeah, and
1: I think the sort of advent of prestige TV in general, has changed the playing field in that, like, the understanding of TV shows as um, serial rather than episodic, looking for a season that's going to tell an overarching story as opposed to individual, self-contained, you know, standalone episodes, that's a thing, you know, that sort of started with, like, The Sopranos and other shows 20 years ago, but now has become a standard expectation. And I think that's a really important element. And I think Game of Thrones threw in the genre element to it. Yes. That it's a fantasy. It's a high fantasy show. And then not
0: just nerds are going to watch fantasy.
1: Right, right. That Like that everyone a high fantasy fucking wants it. Could yeah. have a massive wide appeal. I think all of that did definitely set the stage to enable this adaptation. Um. So let's get into it. I want to talk about the adaptation a little bit and what we liked and didn't like and can observe about it. And then I'd like to kind of like back up and talk more about the property in general.
0: Okay. Okay. So we're starting with the show and then we'll go back to like our passion passion. for Sandman.
1: Okay. Here's where we're going to squeeze a little bit. Okay. Maya, what did you love most about the Sandman adaptation?
0: I have to say it's a little hard because I didn't know what 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 of it was what I was bringing to it Mm -hmm. like first of all okay they cast Morpheus like holy shit the casting of Tom Sturridge as Morpheus was fucking like oh my god so perfect that was crazy I also thought that they translated so many of these visual moments that I remember so clearly. There is an episode that is based on one of the issues that is the most horror, I think, of all of the Sandman.
1: 24-hour diner? 24-hour
0: diner, yeah. yeah. Um, And just being in that world, having those worlds brought to life It was satisfying in a way that I don't know that I've ever experienced, because usually I don't like adaptations of things that I love to read. I find them disappointing. Mm. Harry Potter movies, I was always like, who the fuck goes to this, right? And like, for this, I didn't realize, because Sandman is so dark, Uh Uh (laughs) and the situations are so dark, and visually... It made me realize how cinematic the original comics were, because I almost feel like all they had to do was, was on the page, and they really did.
1: I hear you say that, but let me put this out there. Yes. Long before there was a Watchmen movie adaptation, mm-hmm. I used to say it would be so easy to adapt the Watchmen because it's so cinematic. Like, the way the panels are juxtaposed, yeah. you could just do shot for shot. It's It's a movie already. And then the movie came out so many years ago and kind of did that. And it was awful. it was terrible. Yeah.
0: It was terrible. It felt so flat, reductive. Kind of similar with
1: the movie 300, which was like not as bad, but still not a great fucking movie. It was reductive is a good word for it. It was like very visually literal in terms of taking what was on the page, what was in those panels, and just recreating it in motion and it just came across as lifeless and unintelligent. It was not
0: thoughtful. Okay, so here's why I think it worked. This is my first theory. We have actually yeah. really not prepared, so you're gonna get some raw <laughs> sauce is, in a way that was like this was pretty spontaneous.
1: Um, What's your first? I thought? feel
0: I feel like the reason is because the characters in Sandman are so wonderful. And the actors they got to play them are so fantastic. I feel like that's got to be a huge huge part of it. it. They embodied the spirit and there's something about the sort of pleasure of the dialogue of Sandman, Mm -hmm. where I feel like uh, Watchmen is so much more about these kind of themes and so much more about these like big big ideas. ideas and they got good enough actors who say some somewhat pretentious you know mm-hmm. high lofty dialogue and it doesn't sound weird It doesn't at sound all. that bad right It sounds no,
1: great I think that's a great point there are some fucking fine actors in
0: this uh, Oh my god they it's like a murderer's role. Like they yeah. got like genius act like David. When Dulles David Doole and- <laughs> showed up, I was oh like,
1: wait, that guy looks like David Dooley. Oh my
0: god. And then as the episode oh goes god. on, you're like,
1: well shit, it obviously is because he's so good. And and some of these wonderful casting choices are gender swaps from the yeah. comic like Gwendolyn Christie as Lucifer. And, oh, so and it good. changes the character. It's not the same Lucifer from the comic.
0: Because Lucifer from the comic is David Bowie. It's David
1: Bowie. But like in 1990, when you're looking at Lucifer as this beautiful David Bowie figure, you're like, oh shit, that's right. Lucifer's a fallen angel. He would look like that. Right. But 30 years later, that's been done. Like there's been a whole Lucifer TV show. The idea of Lucifer as a beautiful blonde is like been done. So now it's like Lucifer is Gwendolyn Christie it is the same idea. Lucifer is a fallen angel, but it's a different figuration of what a fallen angel can look like.
0: And then the actress who they had play um, Lucian, yeah, Lucienne. Lucien. Now it's uh, Vivian Achimpong. She's great. So Lucian
1: in the comic is a white man kind of odd looking he's the librarian he's the librarian librarian of the dreaming of the dream realm yes and they cast this black woman in the role so not exactly who you'd expect and yet it's the exact same character like she captures the essence of who that character is
0: so beautifully so i feel like there is something about sandman where people get very invested in the characters in a way that I think for something like Watchmen, you get very invested in the ideas and not in the characters as people. For me, as a fan of the comic,
1: what makes it so good, this TV version, is the like weirdly successful balance of incredible fidelity to the comics, but also very judicious changes where it actually helps the story. I would say... 90 to 99%, like, a very large proportion of the changes they make from the source material improve upon the source material. They actually highlight the themes better than was done in the original comics.
0: I think that that's true. I also think that um, there are these kind of continuous story arcs, but there is something about the self-containedness of each issue that I think really translates well to episodic tv because the entire first season is like issue for issue every episode is an issue issue. for
1: issue like each issue of the comic is an episode this is true and it works well especially for the first story arc preludes and nocturnes which tells the story of dream morpheus being captured by a turn-of-the-century occultist who's trying to capture Death. His son has been killed in World War I, and he thinks if he captures Death, he can bring his son back to life. And so he accidentally captures Death's brother, Dream, and Dream is, in the comic, in captivity for 70 years. In the show, it's updated to now, so it's over 100 years. And when Dream then gets out of captivity, he has to recover the items, his power items or his tools, as he calls them, that were taken from him when he was taken captive. And so it lends itself nicely to this episode-by-episode storytelling, where it's like, he needs to get his bag of sand, he needs to get his ruby, he
0: needs to get his helm, and each one is a little self-contained adventure. And I think that it's true that the doll's house section of the season is not quite as strong. See, okay. I feel differently about I thought it was really well done over the arcs, but it was almost like a new part of the season. But it
1: was, because the Mm -hmm. Doll's House is the second story arc. It's like everything gets wrapped up. Dream gets his three items back. It's all wrapped up. And then it goes into a new story arc, which is the story of Rose Walker, who is a dream vortex. And Morpheus is supposed to kill her to save the dreaming and save the waking world. And, well listeners you'll have to watch and or read to figure out how that turns out but so good <laughs> so good so good so it is another story and that's a challenge in and of itself that they're trying to take these two rather discrete story arcs they are connected but they are discrete and they're trying to put them together as one season of television one thing they did so smartly to make that happen is the character of the Corinthian yes the corinthian is a nightmare who has escaped to the waking world and dream has to take care of that because he's basically a serial killer. In the comic, the Corinthian does not appear until the second story arc, the doll's house. Yes. But in the TV adaptation, they bring him in, in the first episode. In fact, dream is captured when he is in the waking world, trying to apprehend the Corinthian. And then the Corinthian starts participating. He participates in the events of the first story arc because he wants Dream to stay in captivity, which makes perfect sense. Of course he would.
0: Perfect sense. And
1: and totally. it works beautifully to, to thread the two story arcs together. It's really, I thought, a really genius bit of storytelling to do it that way.
0: Well, also because what it does is establish the ways that humans trying to control some of this material is not good for anyone right. and i feel like that's part of what the corinthian does he brings his role as a nightmare which has a really specific role in in the workings of humanity he tries to bring it into the world and he ends up creating this whole like race of serial killers as a response right, right. and so and that's based on people not staying in their lanes. People, And I think that that's actually a huge theme of, of all of it, is like there is an order to things. There is an order to things. And if you fuck with the order of things, that is damaging.
1: Yeah. I, I also think it's important that Dream's captivity starts in 1916. Yes. Definitely Neil Gaiman is saying something about the 20th century,
0: Absolutely.
1: It's very much like this perversion of serial killers as a phenomenon. What does it mean for an entire world to maybe not, lo- not definitely not lose their capacity to dream, but for the dreaming realm to become ungoverned, to, to become yes. no longer properly managed. And I, it's really like so much about the alienation of modern modernity, modern life.
0: Right. And it's really interesting, back to Alan Moore, that in From Hell, mm. he's positing uh, Jack the Ripper as this, like, birth of the 20th yes, century. Yes, yes. And I feel like this is Gaiman's version of the birth of the 20th and 21st century. And I was thinking about that, too, that he's saying once Dream leaves, all of this horror and chaos comes out into the world. Yeah. Um so another thing that they did, so not only did they adapt it in terms of just storytelling in a way that where they had to tighten things, they tightened them. But where they could set up for future seasons, they did that too, which we know yes. because we've read the whole series multiple times. <laughs> um, they also did an amazing job, and you mentioned this briefly, casting Women and people of color, yes, and just changing genders of various characters and changing the races of various characters. And guess what? It's just no big thing. And the actors capture the spirit of it. So and it's great. Wow. It's great. I, I fucking love the casting overall but it's true like
1: there is obviously a deliberate effort like the comic is very white and it is. and we're going to update that because yes. we know better
0: now so then we have beautiful adaptation morpheus is just so fucking hot that actor is so dream of the endless dream daddy as I've heard him (laughs) call it. We have this murderer's row of like legit top shelf motherfucking actors. What doesn't work so well? Okay. I want to preface this by
1: saying I enjoyed the series so much, but I suspected in the back of my mind that maybe – it wasn't that entertaining if you didn't already know the comics. Yes. So yes, I actually went on like Rotten Tomatoes and I looked at all the reviews and I tried to read every review. Like I tried to read the bad reviews to get a sense and I'm mm-hmm. going to get into that in a second. But all the positive reviews that I read, I'm telling you all of them were like, it's such a good adaptation of the comic. I cannot say if it's a good show because I love the comic too much. Like everybody said that. <laughs> So whew, I was like, mm, okay, that's fine. Okay. I need to find someone who hasn't so read the comic. So maybe
0: it's so successful because of what we're bringing to it.
1: Right, right. The complaints or the criticisms, rather, that I read from the less positive reviews were a lot of, it's boring. Mm. Um, and a little bit of, the main character's too mopey and emo.
0: Oh yeah. Well, that's yeah, that's what uh, it is. That's Kind of the whole thing. That's the whole fucking thing. So
1: I try. I showed it to Matt, my husband, who has not read the comics. I tried to make him watch some of it, and he was not interested. Part of it was, I think, he was um, feeling some level of envy around my obvious attraction to Morpheus. I think that's part <laughs> of it. I, we can't deny this, right? He was like, <gasps> "No, I get it. They've captured this guy who's too beautiful to exist in this world. Whatever." I was like, "No, that's
0: not what it's about." <laughs> um, but yes, he is naked in that glass globe. Is yes, he is really naked
1: and skinny, yet wiry, and he's got that Oof. mop of hair. It's just great. Oof. God. But mm. but Matt did point out like a lot of the characters come across as uh, types that you're familiar with. You know, the um, the Magus, as, you know, this overbearing asshole rich guy, his young son who wants to please his father, but knows he never can. You know, he sort of felt like it was predictable and followed um tropes that he was well familiar with. And also, and this is something I noticed myself, it's overwritten. I have to yeah. say, the series yeah. is overwritten. There are moments where uh the voiceover narration tells you stuff that you're seeing and it doesn't need to tell you that there are moments where characters even say things twice or just say too much you're like i got it you just you didn't need that extra line of dialogue it's overwritten
0: also for all that the visual design is great it leans pretty hard on the cgi and not all of the CGI is very good. Yeah, I like you're like, oh, you shot all of this on green screen, like the whole thing.
1: I mean, like, I would wow. say most of the CGI is pretty good. The only things that bothered me were like, like when Mervyn Pumpkinhead comes on. Oh, he's so bad. So it's CGI. really, it's really bad. And it's, like it's really in bad. Mark Hamill's voice doing a great performance. It's a great rendition of the character. But it's like I couldn't look at it. The CGI was so janky. Oh. That yeah. was a little disappointing. But it's like, it's a TV series. There's only so much budget. There's like only so much you can expect. And and these characters, if you are going to adapt this material, like, you're not going to put someone in a CG... I'm sorry, you're not going to put someone in a puppet pumpkin mask. Like, it has to be CGI. So, like, okay. I, I, I'm not going to, like, say that it ruins the show. But there are some special effects that are a little janky. I also... I. I found some of the pacing to be off. And yes, I think a lot of that is a phenomenon of trying to adapt from the comics, especially with the early episodes being like an issue of the comic corresponding to an episode of the show. You get things like in the, I, I guess it was the second episode where he meets Joanna Constantine, another good performance and oh, a gender swap so character. Um, he's looking for his bag of sand. And it has been left with Joanna's ex-girlfriend. And the discovery of that and the implications of that, I don't know, it happens pretty quickly. Like, I felt like I wanted more time on this idea of this poor woman.
0: I think that's, again, a place where that beat is supposed to be about this power Mm -hmm. is not something for mortals. Exactly. And he has it. And Dream is kind of an asshole who doesn't really care about people. And this is something that I think is important for his character. Yeah. Like, we have to know this. Like, he's not somebody – he, like, has this job, but it's not like he likes people. Right. Like, that's – and it, it you winds know.
1: up making the story all about Joanna and her guilt for leaving this woman. And the actual mission, the sand <laughs> – they could have spent a moment there that they didn't. It, there's, a, there's a few places like that. Even in that same episode, you have Mad Hedy saying to Constantine, oh, Morpheus is coming. The Lord the of Dreams is coming. The dream king is here. She turns around. Constantine turns around.
0: And he's and just he's right there. there. Yeah. It was a little awkward. Yeah. 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 There were definitely places where they're trying to stuff it in and you you feel those. It No, it was not like it didn't have like... That sort of perfect, tight pacing where it's like every beat is just like, ooh, leads to the next. It it was a little sloppy. It was a little sloppy. Another thing that you wrote on this list that I totally noticed was like, you don't actually see a lot of Morpheus.
1: So this is one of the challenges, I think, of adapting this comic. As I'm reading these negative reviews, a lot of them are like, this protagonist is mopey, he's distant, he's uninteresting. And I'm like, yeah, that's actually how he is. That's a correct adaptation of yes, this character. Correct. That's just a challenge of the material in the comic. And maybe we can get into this in the next segment because I don't know if it's me in my teens or if it's really the material itself, but it never bothered me that the stories you're reading at least for the first two story arcs which is what the first season covers they're
0: not about morpheus but i feel like that's kind of the whole point and we should get into this it's creating a world yes like sandman is just kind of like morpheus is is this sort of connecting thread of this kaleidoscope of stories about people and characters and desire and gods it's it's a it's a framework in which to have all of these other things. And that was always the pleasure of it, but I could see how that is tricky for something like episodic TV which is very anchored in like well if this is the main guy we Hi, should be seeing the main he's guy doing stuff like,
1: and yeah. not only should he be doing stuff but he should be in some way if not relatable then at least like we can connect with him, identify in some way. And it's kind of the whole point of the source material is like Morpheus is not identifiable. He's super distant. And the story does follow like this entity who everyone thinks cannot change and repeatedly characters say he cannot change. He does change for various reasons and in various ways. And that's the beauty of this story and the arc of the story across 75 issues. But across 10 episodes of a first season of television, it is a little tough there is not that much to grab onto in terms of being like this is my main character this is
0: a person I care about but they do try to shoehorn that in and that was one of the things that I found kind of like oh even in the course of this you know season he's learned something yeah yeah and you're like oh no Uh,
1: (laughs) they they have to I just thought they overrode it a little they, they could have made right. it a little settler
0: but here's the thing I think that again we are bringing so much love for the series to this mm-hmm. and I think that it's not surprising to me that that all of the reviews that love it are all Sandman lovers who are just so happy to see it come to life Okay. What we're saying is this is a really great adaptation of the source material we're in love with. And we we can like, you know, niggle over the little fiddly bits that are like, you know, working or not working. Eh, the CGI, a little pacing, a beat here and there. But what it really comes down to is like the source material. Yeah. So I think we're going to have to maybe ruin this thing we really love.
1: Yeah. This is where we have to get into it because you're absolutely right. Like the things that people say are bad about it or bad about the source material. Like, if your problem is that Dream is too distant and emo, like, oh, I guess you just don't like the fucking Sandman because that's who this character is. That's
0: the whole thing, yeah.
1: All right, so let's ruin it. Let's do
0: it. All right. Well, that's, okay. It's really hard. I really (laughs) love it so much. Uh, It's All right, let's start with this. Okay. Morpheus
1: is... An interesting protagonist. Look, he's a stand-in for the writer. Uh, Yeah. He is very much like this uh, 20-something kind of gothy English white dude's idea of what he wants to be. Super handsome. Everyone thinks he's so good looking. But his big problem is that he's too haughty and too proud and too devoted to his responsibilities. It's Right. It is very like, you know, uh, some time ago we had a whole episode about male geniuses. Yes.
0: It's pretty oh, male genius stuff. Yeah, Morpheus is the ultimate male genius, which is why I think... We can love it because we don't spend so much time with him. Like, I feel like the fact that he provides this framework for all the storytelling, like one of my favorite um, uh, collections is World's End, Mm -hmm. which doesn't, you barely see him at all because it's like this, there's a big storm and people are trapped and they just tell stories. Like, it's this framework for a lot of storytelling. And I think that what I loved about it is that it's super... Literate. It's like this absorption of the whole histories of like fables, famous literature, storytelling, famous characters in history, archetypes. Like it's about all of this. It's creating this world that can contain all of the archetypes of human history and contain it in this bucket, which means it can go to all of these different places. And that's what's really pleasurable. I mean, I was just I just did a whole pre-read. I was
1: reading the Thermidor issue. It's about the French Revolution, or it takes place during the French Revolution. And it's just packed with these little details you know, inevitably, you, you can't just be in the French Revolution. You are going to talk to Robespierre. You're going to yes. encounter Thomas Paine imprisoned yes. in a French there's, prison.
0: There's this beautiful uh, issue that's super small about, but just so beautiful about uh, the emperor of San Francisco, <laughs> about this this historical character of this guy who proclaimed himself the the, the emperor. emperor of San Francisco. And it's like, and Mark Twain shows up and it puts you in that era of like, sailors and immigrants in this sort of port town and like it's so good
1: yeah and in in this world in this cosmology sort of thing that gaming creates um all mythologies are real Uh, yes everything exists all these realms mystical metaphysical realms all coexist and so he incorporates deities from all kinds of cultures past and present famous and less known and it it's really it's so uh literate and historically literate and it, it's really just rich in that way
0: and unlike I would say something like the fully contained world of the Marvel Universe there's a little room in how he presents the cosmology for these, existences to exist on their own in their mm-hmm. own full world and not have to make sense with one another. Right. Or come together with one another. Like the the structure of the endless is, is enough of a structure, but it's kind of a loose structure. It doesn't force itself on like shoveling all of this into one kind of history that makes sense. It's like there's a way that it's just enough of a structure that he can go anywhere he wants.
1: Exactly. And it,
0: yeah. No, if you are the kind of reader or
1: viewer who is stuck on the idea of a system of magic that has very clear rules, you might have some trouble with it. Like I, there's not a huge number of like contradictions, but there's definitely some like unexplained stuff and some ways in which it's just like, this is a piece of mythology. So it's here. And if you can't figure out how it's compatible with all this other stuff, other stuff too bad. (laughs) Like it's here.
0: It's here. We're going to visit this place and then we're going to be done. And like, yeah, this realm. Yeah.
1: So that's something we love. I I think it's fair to say, though, that although Neil Gaiman clearly makes an effort to be global, that we lean very heavily toward European
0: mythologies and Yes, and and towards whiteness, because I think one of the things I really liked about the series is I think that we're entering this time uh, in TV and film where we're representing the fact that Europe was never all white. (laughs) (laughs) There were always fucking people of color in Europe. Um, But that is not the world of Sandman. And there's this way that all of these different mythologies are being filtered through him, Neil Gaiman, the great genius. Mm -hmm. And that's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's... And like, he gives in the comic and in the show,
1: he gives sort of lip service to the idea, uh, Dream has... This ex-girlfriend, Nada, who is 10,000 years ago a queen somewhere in Africa. And when he appears to her, she sees him as a black African. So Neil Gaiman wants to make it clear, the show creators want to make it clear, that Dream appears however he would appear to you based on your cultural context. However, that said, we always see him as a white goth. Yes. Yes.
0: We do. That's his. That's his main
1: look. English, musty-haired guy. The implication is that's his sort of authentic self. I mean, you absolutely can read it as well. It's being shown to us that way because that's our cultural context. But it's hard to escape the idea that that's his real self, and he appears in these other ways to other people. But like at his core, he's a English white guy.
0: Because that's what Neil Gaiman is, exactly. and I feel like I mean, in a lot of ways, what Neil Gaiman became after was the problem with The Sandman. Like mm. he became such a fucking rock star off of it, and such a a, a knower of all things um, that I feel like, yeah, like it became kind of there became kind of some douchiness around that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I cannot speak to whether he was already a douche or whatever. But (laughs) that's true. There is this way, and that's interesting what you point out, because there is this way in which there was a time of change in the mid to late 80s in comics where people were deconstructing superhero ideas. And this was one of the first titles that brought that other way of approaching comics, this more sort of thoughtful and mature way, brought it to a mainstream. I mean, it was DC Comics, and it led to the whole Vertigo imprint which were these kind of exciting, different alternative horror fantasy comics. And I want to give great credit for that. But there's also another side to that, which is a generation of people came up and started making comics that they thought were mature and thoughtful, but were actually just dirty. <laughs> you know, where like adult and mature kind of get confused. It's like there's right. titties in this comic. It's for adults. Right. It's mature. It's right. like important. There's there's rape and people slitting throats and like this those happening at the same time with tits. This is mature material. It's like no it's not. Right.
0: It's it's actually still really juvenile. You've taken all the wrong lessons. Well, and that's that's the sort of thing I guess you're talking about the sort of impact on other comics which are still being written after that by a lot of white guys just making white guy comics yes. but thinking they're being deep. Yeah. I'm talking a little bit about Gaiman's own cult of personality. Right, but
1: I I want to say that they're connected. Yeah, yeah. I, I, there's a way in which when, when you make a comic that quotes Shakespeare liberally or you make a comic that features obscure Norse gods, everyone in the comics world is like, whoa shit you know everything because all they've ever read is comics in their fucking life. I'm putting down people who read comics you know I'm one of them. I'm right there with you folks but it's not that hard a crowd to impress on that level so it sort of makes sense that it would lead to him becoming this like godlike figure beyond just you write great comics Right
0: and I think that that's another thing that's interesting with that is that in sandman there are things like people of color and queers and like his his seeing of the world and women important female characters like so true a lot of it in a way that is so when you are us who are you're like you know uh 19 year old indie rock girls <laughs> in the 90s it's very fucking exciting yeah. right like that's a very very exciting to see all of these like female characters the queer and queer like,
1: characters like that that actually really was something at the time it top. was huge yeah it
0: was huge because also the queer characters in the book there are a lot of them, and in some ways it's not notable. Right. They just, just are. Present. There's an approach to queerness where it's just in this world. And yeah, this character is gay, or these characters are lesbians, or this and it's not a big fucking deal at all. Right. And you're like, wow, this is a new fucking future. Like it wrote the future. It's this world where like there isn't a contempt for any of these characters.
1: It's that that's a really good point. And you know, on my recent reread, I just, I just kept thinking like, well, they're goths. (laughs) Like they're, they're goths in the early nineties. Like, yeah, they're queer. And, and queerness is just part of the scene. And at the time when I read it, then it was just kind of like part of the scene. It's really hard to, for me to parse that. Like, it's hard to put yourself back in that position and like think about culturally generally speaking how gayness how trans people like I remember reading a game of you there's a trans character and I will say there are elements of that story arc a game of you that are problematic I kept thinking I hope if and when they adapt this story arc to the screen they take some time to rethink how they handled this
0: Oh, but you know they will right? because de- Desire is this multi-gendered character and they have a non-binary performer play Desire. Like, it's per- it's- I mean, and, and they are great in that role. Yes. <laughs> oh my so God. Good. So I feel like there is a way in which the adaptation gets to step into this world that he was presenting to a mainstream audience, but again- one of the things I always felt, because I read Man and loved it, and then I started reading Alan Moore, mm-hmm. and I remember thinking like, oh, I think Alan Moore is a lot smarter. Mm. Like there's a way in terms of its critique of the world. And so to make Neil Gaiman godly, it's less a reflection of the comic books himself and more about what happened after mm. and how it was sort of taken up.
1: Yeah, and I think that a uh, uh, incisive... And cleverly framed social commentary is not taken as, as smart as a bunch of obscure allusions and references to yes. literature and mythology and history.
0: And obscure references, but then are then put into very human stories. Right. Which is a great part of its appeal. And that's something that um Tom and Lorenzo, which is a blog I know I've mentioned a million times, it originally started as a Project Runway uh a recap blog called Project Run Gay, and now it's like celebrity fashion by two of the smartest writers on the (laughs) internet. Um, But Tom was a huge Sandman fan. So they did reviews of every episode. And he was talking about how Neil Gaiman's work in general, especially the Sandman, uh, he said, it's all about taking the metaphorical, mythical, and symbolic and making it physical, literal, and all too human. So, yeah, this is about bringing all of this metaphor and turning it into people who do stuff. Yeah. And, like, yeah, like, that's super pleasurable, but there's... I don't know. know. Okay, so
1: I think that is probably the overriding theme of Sandman. Fundamentally, what distinguishes the series is it takes all of these concepts and ideas and gods and figures from mythology and just turns them into people. They are characters. And yes. while that's engaging storytelling on page and on screen, I think it's also thematically sig- significant. It, it's just yes. trying to approach the topic of, like, fucking existence in this world, on this plane, as opposed to the the political condition, you know, the, the right. way hegemony works. But the way he approaches it is to personify, to anthropomorphize.
0: And I yes. think
1: ultimately you land on this idea of, like, we're all just people trying to figure shit out. The gods are just people trying to figure shit out. And and we're going to muddle through it. And we're going to deal with change and loss and disappointment and growth. And then we're going to die. <laughs> but it's going to be okay.
0: Right. Right. Well, so then here I want to get to this thing that you wrote about, which is this idea of Morpheus as the epitome of disaffected Gen X. Like, this is a... I feel like this is a Gen X fucking yeah, monument. Exactly. Like, this whole... The, and, the whole and we are Gen X, guys. Yeah. So this, this is, is part Gen of, X. like,
1: I can't separate myself from the source material. I can't separate That's myself right. from this. Is this good? I don't know. Yeah. I'm a Gen Xer, and I feel like there's something so intrinsically Gen X about this comic. And... Even as much as the adaptation is so updated in so many ways, it still, I think, can't ex- can't entirely escape that Gen X thing, which is I think a large source of the criticisms. I think a lot of what people are saying about like, oh, it's kind of boring, it's kind of like he's mopey and self-indulgent. It's like, yeah. <laughs> Have you met Gen X? <laughs> yeah. This is who we yeah. are.
0: Right. So we are people who are, God, what are we? Well, that's the thing. You could say that all of the, what are we? So we're not baby boomers. And we're not millennials. And we're we're not millennials. We're right in
1: between. We're
0: like the- We're the middle child. We are the
1: middle child. We're the smallest generation. So our voices get drowned out, but also coming after the baby boomers, like immediately after them is a real fucking trip. Because this is this enormous fucking generation who think they invented everything.
0: They invented free love. They invented enlightenment. They
1: invented youthful rebellion. They invented protest against the establishment. Then they also invented giving up on protest against the establishment because you're 30 and you have a family. They invented realizing you're 40 but still cool. Like anything you're going (laughs) to arrive at in life, they've already arrived at and they fucking invented it. Oh my god that's been the story of being gen x you know we were called slackers who had no direction in life and it was all oh my god i know i know it takes you back
0: right well it's just also because the show where i got my covid last thursday was a super chunk show which is the epitome gen x indie rock band and their big fucking hit was slack motherfucker right and that, yeah. that's like you know, yeah. so we're all just screaming like Slack, motherfucker. Like, yeah. We yeah. brought everyone to grunge rock. Grunge is this
1: kind of nihilism yes. of like, I don't like the system, but I'm fucking powerless to do anything about it. What the I fuck? I don't do like you your want?
0: synthesizers. Yeah. You know, I'm just yeah. in here in my garage with my, with guitar, my guitar. Go and yeah. it's and that's the realer shit, okay? My <laughs> shit is way realer than your corporate bullshit. All right. Right. Yeah. Independent music labels, independent yeah. film. I mean, that's that's very yeah, much what Sandman felt like this part of, even though it was put out it as was a DC imprint, DC
1: comic. But but it, it it was of a piece with this movement of independent comics moving away from standard superhero stories, and uh, the whole character of Morpheus. I keep reading things that call him emo, and I don't want to deny that that's what he is, but emo wasn't a thing in 1990, 1989. Like, he was emo before there was such a thing as emo. But in so many ways, he embodies this Gen X disaffectedness. I don't know. There's just a way in which the particular mood and quality of all of the like. Their their family dynamic and their struggle between, oh, I have these responsibilities. Like destruction, abandoning his role. Destruction has this set of responsibilities. He has a role to play and he looks at the world and says not, well, I can do better. Oh, the humans are on the path to discovering how to split the atom. I can organize this in a way that will be the most productive because creation cannot exist without destruction. Instead, he's like, I can't do shit about this. I'm just going to fuck off. Right. There's something very Gen X about that. But um, we are talking about like when we talk about Gen X in the 90s, this is a very specific
0: sliver of yes.
1: the people born in the time period that
0: qualifies. Yes, as- because because you know what's not in there at all? Like, there's no hip hop in right, there. Right, right. Which was the biggest world-changing culture thing exactly. that fucking happened. Exactly, Like, this is a very specific white subcultural yeah. Gen and X. And it's like
1: a white middle, upper middle class Gen X.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, to be and clear. And it's the white upper middle class Gen X that's, like, moving into, like, shitty neighborhoods and then they're going to gentrify them right. because there's a lot of sort of glamorizing of like the shitty neighborhood and the crappy apartment and like right. working the shitty job and that's very like that's very upper middle class to do right totally. so it's <laughs> totally and I feel like that's very much in that world of it because that's more real that's more like authentic which of Neil Gaiman was writing this from his like you know, country home in Minnesota while I was raising children, like, no, these shitty apartments, that's like, that's what real people fucking do. That's just authenticity, man. No, I mean,
1: when you're a 19-year-old who was raised in the suburbs by upper middle class parents in like a completely upper middle class white existence, and you are reading a comic about a trans woman and this lesbian couple... they live in this shitty these shitty apartments and this building in New York, you're like, that's
0: real. That's real. It's real life, man. It's fucking real. It's real. So I feel like that's what we're coming to is that it's it's this very specific flavor of Gen X Mm -hmm. that it's filtering all of human historical existence and mythology
1: through, through that. Exactly. And so like,
0: <laughs> yeah, there are limits, you know, like, there, there are limits. <laughs> so, yeah. so I think that what we're saying, what we're coming to is that because it's in this white male, British, very, I mean, this was an era where we were having a lot of fights over what is the canon. Ultimately, the canon is very elevated by this by Sandman. I mean, like the traditional canon of That's what people were calling canon true. is super Sandman. And so what it's saying is like, we can go to the edges, but it's still, don't worry, guys. It's still white guys yeah. who read canon literature as the the most evolved. We're still running the joint. Don't worry about it, guys. Yeah,
1: and I do feel like at its core... The the central conflict that that undergirds the entire story is this like, I have responsibilities, but I also wanna be my own person. Which is like, yeah. it's very white Gen X. I have responsibilities and I wanna do them, but also I've gotta be me. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, you know what? Make that makes me think of right now just to bring it to present political like when everything was happening around Kirsten Cinema uh-huh. and is she going to vote for the IRA or oh, not? There are all of these like profiles about like her as a person. And it's like I don't I give a who shit who gives a who shit? She is. Who gives a shit? But it becomes about like this character of Kirsten mm-hmm. Cinema, as opposed to like this vote and the impact it has on many, many millions of people. there There's something about that that's very... Maybe there is a problem in
1: leaning too hard toward seeing everything through the lens of it's all people. It's all just people with individual psychological problems, emotional problems they need to work through. It's like, no, actually there are systems, <laughs> there are
0: institutions... <laughs> Well, and I think that at the end of the day, that's sort of, that's the Sandman's strength and its weakness, mm-hmm. because it gets to human interaction, again, in ways that I think are what facilitate the adaptation. Because I feel yeah. like every one of those characters, like you can see every actor being like, yes, <laughs> let me play this character. <laughs> I Just want to play Cain in. and Abel. Gimme, gimme, gimme. Like, like these are people. Roles that actors want to fucking play. And so that reflects on Neil Gaiman's writing. You don't feel like with, with any of Alan Moore's characters, nobody's stepping in and being like, I can't wait to play this character because they don't have that. Right, right. So that is its strength. And it's also its limitation because it puts walls around so many of the other things. If we're all just people and like mm-hmm. these giant powers are just all just people then we don't yeah. have to think about those other sort of structures. And we're
1: not things. thinking about things like power balances and hegemony and structural no. distribution of power. It's like, yeah. why does Morpheus have all of this power?
0: Because he does. Because he just does. Because that's just the way it is, man. Yeah, it's the way of
1: the universe. But it's like you said, it's all filtered through the point of view of a 20-something English guy it's a very specific point of view. And as much as he is part of a world that is open and accepting and embracing of like LGBT people, which is wonderful, yes. it is still very white. We talk about problematic faves, and the point is not to say, well, it was the times. We didn't know there were black people. Like, we knew. He he didn't include that. He included the world that was familiar to us in a lot of ways. And it felt like it was connecting our world to some expansive thing that encompassed the universe.
0: And encompassed history. And encompassed
1: history. And all of that was cool, but it wasn't so much doing that as it was filtering all of history and all ideas and all cosmologies and mythologies through our world and our understanding of
0: the world yes so we're really we're ruining us because what (laughs) we're saying is we love this because it's filtering all of human history through the things that we fucking related to yeah so it was like written for us exactly (laughs) I think that if we didn't read Sandman, we would find the adaptation super boring. And I think that the adaptation is literally for the fans.
1: I want to get like a test group of 20 people who have never read the comic and just like show it to them. I want to know what people think. Because I cannot, I'm going to just openly admit, I I cannot objectively assess how good a show it is.
0: Listeners, uh, tell us what you think. If you have never read the Sandman comic books... Go and watch that show and come back to us and tell us what you think. I need to know if the show is good by an
1: objective standard, please. Yes. Please watch it. If you've never read the comics, just watch it. Um, But also, if you are a fan of the comics, uh, are we wrong about the problems
0: and or the strengths of the comics? What did you squee about most? I find it notable that both Rebecca and I squeed. About Barbie Barbie's, and Martin Tenbones. Barbie's dream. Oh my God. That. To see that come to life was particularly... But, but
1: what what really made it exciting to me was the way in which it was such a minor relative detail in the picture of Rose Walker's story. But they took the time and effort to make Barbie's dream exactly what it is in the comic word for word word image for image and it just it was one of those sort of details that makes you say wow these people really love and respect this comic and also it hinted toward future potential future but also
0: because part of it is that you think she's just Barbie and you're like, no, Barbie is living in a very rich fantasy life. That's <laughs> right, like right, right. Extremely complex and like weird fairy tales. And it's like you're, fr- and there's something about that in the books that was also so pleasurable. These characters that you would dismiss in this way right. are actually well, somewhere everyone, else.
1: Everyone in the comics has some kind of backstory, some kind of interiority, internal life. Yeah. And, and that's sort of part of the theme and the whole idea of dream, everybody dreams. And that means both actual literal sleeping, going to sleep and dreaming, but also means ambitions and hopes, creativity, imagination, and it exists in everyone. And it's just like a beautiful thing.
0: I'm sorry. Oops. It's just so good. It's so good. <laughs> it's so good. All right, listeners, we want to hear from you. You can email us at saucepodcast at gmail.com. Join our Patreon, patreon.com slash saucepodcast, and come to the Sauce Speakeasy and talk to us about it. Uh, you can also find us on
1: various social medias at saucepodcast. You can find me at Maya Garance,
0: anywhere you're looking for Maya Garances.
1: And I am at Gynostar on all the various platforms.
0: All right, friends.
1: Audio Samibas.